I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello, and welcome to another episode of All Things Policy. I'm your host, Rakshit. a research analyst at Takshashila Institution and today we are going to talk about how china seeks to reshape the global information environment to talk about this issue today i have dr shriparna pathak on the show dr pathak is an associate professor at the jindal school of international affairs she was a part of the ministry of external affairs working as a consultant for the policy planning and research division she has been a recipient of the joint fellowship awarded by the ministry of human resources development and the china scholarship council and she spent 2 years in china actively researching various aspects of china's domestic economy welcome dr patak thank you so much for being here thank you rakshit thank you so much for having me here every country should have the ability to tell its story to the world however a nation's narrative should be based on facts and rise and fall on its own merits the people's republic of china employs a variety of deceptive and coercive methods as it attempts to influence the international information environment china's information manipulation spans the use of propaganda disinformation and censorship unchecked the people's republic of china efforts will reshape the global information landscape creating biases and gaps that could even lead nations to make decisions that subordinate their economic and security interests to beijing's Now these are in my words. This is an excerpt from the U.S. Department of State report published in 2023. I'd like to start with the basics, Dr. Patak. Would you please tell us the difference between misinformation and disinformation, and why is it so important for the Communist Party of China to control information? It's a very um, pertinent question. So disinformation is false information which is deliberately spread to deceive people. Disinformation is an orchestrated. Mm-hmm. adversarial activity which in which you know actors employ strategic deceptions uh, media manipulation tactics take place so that um, you know political military or commercial goals can be advanced disinformation is implemented through attacks that weaponize multiple rhetorical strategies and forms of knowing including not just falsehoods but also half truths or semi truths and value judgments these are done to exploit and amplify culture wars and other identity driven controversies as contrasted to disinformation misinformation refers to inaccuracies which stem from inadvertent error misinformation can be used to create disinformation when known misinformation is purposefully and intentionally disseminated um one uses the word disinformation when one knows for a fact that false or erroneous information is being spread on purpose to hurt or damage especially a government or an organization or a public figure if one doesn't know for certain why someone is spreading bad information um then it's best to use uh, misinformation so misinformation in very short you know um is created and shared without malicious intent while disinformation is created and uh, shared to deceive so the primary causes causes of you know this sort of in- increase in disinformation is um you know especially when autocratic countries um try to why for a certain 
position in the international system and would like to shape narratives and perceptions of it, which of course help it. So um, it's a very potent and pertinent tool. And you've already spoke about the definition by, you know, given by the U.S. Department of State. EU also has its FEMI um, framework, which looks at, um, you know, foreign interference and manipulation of information. Um, in Philippines also, there was an extensive report on, um, you know, how disinformation works and how the whole attempt to change narratives or to create certain situations which sway the electorate take place. So it's very potent, it's very malicious, which is why it's it's an arena one must um, take cognizance, cognizance, cognizance of. And Dr. Pathak, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, but with the implementation of the Great Firewall of China, the party secured the internal flow of information. However, its citizens were still getting conflicting information outside the country, threatening the party's legitimacy. Therefore, they focused on external information control and hired internet commentators. Starting in 2004, with the idea of countering any undesirable online information with the party's viewpoints, in, these internet commentators quickly became an international information tool. The CCP started forming groups of commentators nationwide, calling for those with good political qualities. Now, official training was developed, directives were drafted, and compensation was established. Back then, it was around 50 cents per post, as per various studies. But these internet commentators, aka the 50 cent party, became highly active in internal and external online discussions. Uh, there's one Harvard study published in 2017, which estimates over 488 million social media posts per year posted by these 50 cents army. And the paper also mentions that the 50 cent party is mostly composed of government employees contributing part-time outside their regular jobs, not, as has been claimed, ordinary citizens paid piecemeal for their work. The directives of these groups are simple, criticize America, criticize India, undermine democracy, downplay the existence of Taiwan, and promote the CCP and their patriotic emotions. What's your take on this, Dr. Patak? So you've explained pretty elaborately already, you know, as to how the study itself says um, there have been 488 social media posts um, by the 50 cent army. And uh, the primary purpose mm -hmm. is to undermine democracy, because for any country to be the leading actor of the international system, it's no longer just mm -hmm. military power or indices related to military power. It's also cultural power. It's also soft power, which is why in China, the concept of sharp power becomes very important. So Shapar also includes something known as cognitive warfare or shaping the perceptions of people outside. Um, why, why should China shape perceptions of people outside? Because beyond just being the biggest military power, which China is not yet, or beyond just being the greatest economic power in the world, which China is not yet, um, it will also have to have an acceptance of its governance systems. Xi Jinping in his 19th party Congress had made it very clear that, you know, China is willing to take on the role of the leader of the international system and that Tang Xiaoping's Tao Guang Yanghui or hiding one's power or biding one's time, that, that is long over. He had said developing countries should emulate China's economic and governance model. Now, how does China make other countries, especially from the global south, accept its governance model? portray an image of China that its governance structure is better. China's governance structure is not a liberal-style democracy as is followed in the world's oldest democracy, US, or in the world's largest democracy, India, which is why the fissures or the fraction points in both, say, US 
or in India or other democratic countries. These are constantly emphasized so as to portray democracy as a pathetic way of governance and China's model of governance being superior, which is why the 50 cent army or the pink army, the little pinks as they are also called, um, engage mm-hmm. in massive disinformation and they manipulate information show as, so as to showcase China in a better light or a positive light. And they will talk more about, you know, um, the politics of race in the U.S., um, you know, all sorts of governance failures in the U.S. Also, the same tactic would be applied with regards to India. There are minor differences, even in the ways in which the 50 cent army or the little pinks operate with regards to the Western world and India. But the primary purpose is this. And it would not want Taiwan to be accepted even amongst the civilians of any country as another you know, nation state or as another country. So which is why um, there's a clear mandate which is given to the Little Pinks. And Professor, uh, the party established the Central Propaganda Department in 1922, even before the People's Republic of China was founded to disseminate propaganda in party-controlled areas and to shape the population into the sort of citizen body that would function in a communist society. What is the role of Central Propaganda Department today in China? So the Propaganda Department is still very pertinent and very potent. Mm-hmm. Historically also, it was created with a purpose. It that, that same purpose exists still now to facilitate propaganda. So even in a lot of universities in China, you will see a propaganda department, which is a little difficult to understand, um, especially when one is from a democracy. But uh, the propaganda department was, again, to create a certain narrative, to give it out primarily to its own domestic audience. Um, just to give you an example, if you try and compare, say, the narratives on Tibet, say in the 1950s, 1960s versus mm-hmm. those right now, you will see that the propaganda is still, the line of thinking is pretty much still the same. The propaganda is still the same. The tools and mechanisms have become different. Something like, you know, huge posters mm-hmm. of Mao Zedong in the, in the center with, um, you know, minorities, um, including Tibetans, flanking him and receiving him with a lot of fanfare. That is the exact same thing which Xi Jinping has also been doing. And you will see all these photos and these imagery of how Tibetans love Xi Jinping and how they are welcoming him. Um, and, you know, as to how <clears throat> the China chosen Panchen Lama is, is great, is excellent, he's creating changes in Tibet and so on. So the propaganda is still pretty much the same, which is why the central propaganda department is very important. There is a lot of linkage between the Central Propaganda Department and the UFWD in China, which engages in narrative or um, creation of this propaganda, putting out a certain perspective as to how to see things in China or as to how China is a great benevolent country. So that's the that's still the role of the Central Propaganda Department. And uh, coming to Taiwan, uh, there was a recent surge in racist remarks belittling Indian workers in Taiwan. Did the party have any role in it? Uh, I'm asking because you have written an excellent piece on it, which made a lot of noise in Taiwan. Would you please provide a brief summary of it for our listeners? Sure. So, um, you know, in October last year, Taiwan was mulling over a labor mobility pact with India because Taiwan is an aged society. It's not even an aging society. It's an aged society. Um, And uh, the proportion of the aged or people above 60 is humongous. So Taiwan needs laborers to further fuel its economy. Now, um, it Mm. also needs a lot of laborers for the caregiving profession for the simple reason that 
there is an aged population in china besides that it also needs laborers particularly blue collared laborers to you know engage in construction and so on now given that indian laborers have had excellent reputations while working abroad and has the positive and india also has positive demographics it has the youngest population in the world it was hoped by taiwan mm. that a collaboration in this sphere can be thought of however no sooner was there a whiff of this pro china handle started pushing out racist diatribes against indian laborers and created the narrative that the mobility of 100000 indian laborers will create instability in taiwan and that the dpp government wants to destroy taiwanese society um these racist diatribes were of course very racist and um you know uh, they were done clearly to create a certain sort of fear within the taiwanese electorate or the taiwanese civilians the impact was so huge that the ministry of foreign affairs of taiwan had to issue a statement saying that this uh, mobility pact was under consideration there would not be an influx of 100000 indian laborers at one go um and that the number 100000 was imaginary it was cooked up so this also became an election mm. agenda india has nothing to do with taiwanese politics and um, you know um india uh, does not even have a boundary to share with taiwan per se unlike india nepal or india bangladesh wherein you know these are south asian countries and um, india figures as an important point during elections it's not the case with taiwan but this whole disinformation right. regarding 100000 indian laborers became an election issue the disinformation fueled so mm. much fear in the taiwanese electorate there was an actual protest held in taipei on december 3rd 2023 against the influx of indian laborers now this was the same taiwanese audience which had cheered india on using the cyberspace when india held its ground against china at galwan imageries of the milk tea alliance between prime minister modi and um, then president tsai ing wen along with imageries of lord ram aiming his arrow at a fire breathing dragon had taken the taiwanese cyberspace by storm that was the sort of support but now it was the same um taiwanese cyberspace which was um churning out further racist diatribes but the first point definitely was a pro china handle the protest in person on the ground on december 3rd was done using something called dcard Now Dcard is an online social media networking platform based in Taiwan and it was first created by Qutu Lin the then sophomore at National Taiwan University um uh, but then the fears were really really rife which is why till elections in January there was no further discussion about the labor mobility because it was clearly being pushed out that um you know the DPP government is anti Taiwan so um the story doesn't end here In January this year before the elections those pro china handles which were slinging mud at former president Tsai Ing-wen or on the current Taiwanese president Lai Ching-te are the exact same handles that are spreading disinformation against the ruling government in India as well as false narratives mm. on Manipur there's an excellent study done by done on this by Albert Chang of the ASPI um and there have been attempts mm. to you know deepen the crisis in Manipur these were the exact same handles which were pushing out those narratives against the dpp against chaing one and against uh, lighting the so disinformation is really mm-hmm. potent it can affect international relations um these handles were also talking about how taiwan should cooperate and collaborate with china rather than with india mm-hmm. so it has implications domestically it has implications internationally stay tuned to all things policy we'll be right back after a short commercial break 
and the non-profit Taiwan Fact Check Center points uh, to these three notable fake stories that spread before the Taiwan elections. The first was that Taiwan is set to begin constructing students and the elderly as the risk of war with China grows. The second was that after a Chinese aircraft carrier approached Taiwanese waters, a U.S. carrier fled away, revealing that the unreliable U.S. is basically unreliable. And the third, that was the authorities are turning a blind eye, Taiwanese authorities, to the illegal sale of U.S. pork and other products that do not meet local safety standards. This disinformation was designed to spoke, stoke fears of war, anxieties about food safety and public distrust of the U.S. And many in Taiwan believed that the Chinese were behind these false stories. And according to their own survey compiled uh, by the TFC, 82.8% of Taiwanese respondents said that they had encountered false information over the past year, up from 75% in the previous survey in 2022. Uh, around a third of those respondents said that they receive false information daily or frequently. So this is really a big issue in Taiwan. So would you please explain how Taiwan is dealing with this Chinese disinformation at home and do they have any dis anti-disinformation strategy or entity and what can India learn from Taiwan? Right. So as you said that, you know, um, especially this, this whole issue of disinformation became an even bigger headache for Taiwan just before the elections. And as you said, 82.5% of the electorate said that they've received false um, information. Um, in repelling mm -hmm. disinformation, Chinese and domestic, Taiwan offers an example to other democracies, which are also holding elections this year, India included. Um, you know, a few mm -hmm. days ago, Google had said that the maximum amount of disinformation is actually in India. Of course, a lot of them are domestic. A lot of it also comes wow. from external agencies. Now, um, okay. in Taiwan, the response to disinformation was very swift. Fact-checking groups debunked the rumors. Um some of them were really hilarious. But, uh, you know, in addition to the three uh, rumors or the three narratives which were pushed out, which you just talked about, there was also another narrative that, um, that you know, um, Taiwan or the DPP is harvesting organs and giving out biometric data to the U.S., which is creating, um, you know, biological weapons to attack the Chinese. So all sorts of these narratives just for fear mongering were created. So um, the Central mm -hmm. Election Commission in Taiwan, it held a news conference to push back on claims of electoral discrepancies because even after the results were declared, um, you know, there was this uh, mm -hmm. particular video, which was, of course, disinformation. It was going around that, you know, um, people somehow had been coaxed or forced into uh, casting the vote for the wrong party, right? So which is why the Central Election Commission had to um, come up and, you know, push back on claims of electoral discrepancies. Um, Taiwan took the help of a lot of influencers who are actually interested in the truth. So there's this one particular handle called Froggy Chu, who has more than 600,000 subscribers. Uh, Froggy Chu also put, on, put out explainers on YouTube explaining how votes are tallied in Taiwan. Taiwan civil society groups like MyGoPen or the Taiwan Fact Check Center, which you just talked about, um, it received uh, $1 million funding from Google, it focused on raising public awareness through debunking individual rumors that, you know, members of the public report. Um, Taiwan has a very strong civil society. Many of the fact checker groups have been founded by dedicated individuals. MyGoPen is an example. Um, the founder of MyGoPen, Charles Ye, he started a chatbot, chatbot service uh, 
because he found that his own relatives would get confused by online rumors. Um, then there's the Taiwan Fact Check Center. All of these are very careful not to take any government money so as to preserve their mm. own independence. Uh, media literacy on fake news and the digital environment is growing. Um, it's you know definitely it's been put on play in place. It's growing slowly, but at least the mechanism is there. While the election passed without a major crisis, the challenge continues to evolve for Taiwan. So um, Double Think Lab, um, which is also one of these pioneers against disinformation, it has also said that you know China's efforts at disinformation has become increasingly localized, increasingly sophisticated. So um, you know it will talk about things which affect people's day-to-day lives, which people can relate to, and which is why they'll be scared of it. Um, so you know they'll pick up these these handles which were or these little pinks which would be churning out these narratives. They would pick up something mm. which exists in the society. Then it's relatively more convincing. Now to fortify the mm. younger generation against this, Taiwan's Ministry of Education incorporated media literacy into its latest teaching guidelines. These require school children uh, between the ages of six to eighteen to learn how to effectively use technology, information, and media of all types. Um, so. These are definitely things which India can learn from because media literacy is much needed. Um, there needs to be more cooperation and collaboration between the government and the civil society, um, and the civil society needs to understand that disinformation is really a potent tool. So I think um, Taiwan's experience has been a great one, and India could pick up some lessons from this. Right. Uh, and uh, Dr. Patak, coming back to uh, Japan, a few months back in many social media posts, the mm-hmm. phrase nuclear contaminated wastewater appeared. The same wording used by the Chinese government and the state media to refer to Japan's release into the ocean of treated radioactive water from the ruined Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. And there were many protests by the Chinese against the Japanese. What was the whole issue about? So um, Japan started releasing treated radioactive water from you know the stricken Fukushima nuclear power plant into the Pacific Ocean as of twenty fourth of August. Chinese state owned media mm-hmm. has been using false reports to spread disinformation in order to discredit Japan. Now social media influencers, bot accounts um, have been observed amplifying all these narratives. So um, mm-hmm. you know Chinese state media, including CCTV, Xinhua News Agency. They all manipulated the issue, claiming that radioactive material from Japan's nuclear waste water is going to pollute most of the Pacific Ocean in 57 days and will reach the global sea waters within 10 years. When Japan started releasing the radioactive water from the Fukushima, Fukushima nuclear power plant um, on the 24th of August, China's state-owned media, including CCTV, as I said, rehyped the issue. Now it was also reported by mainstream patriotic media such as Weifang.com. Um, a lot mm-hmm. of newspapers across the globe reported the exact same information, quoting either an "quote unquote" expert or a marine scientific research institution. So, um, influencers, social media users, content farm pages—they all spread the same or similar messages. Um, if you would scrape Twitter using hashtags, you could also find a number of newly registered bot accounts. Using the same hashtag against Japan, some of these accounts have been suspended by Twitter, uh, but the newer bot accounts keep coming up with the same hashtag and the same narrative. So a wave of online harassment and vitriol directed at Japanese people following the release of treated radioactive water from 
Fukushima set the tensions between mm. Japan and China soaring. It became so bad that Tokyo had to summon the Chinese ambassador. Now, China's heavily censored internet exploded in an outrage after Japan, you know, released the water. Several videos on social media showed Chinese callers dialing the numbers of Japanese businesses and institutions, shouting on the phone, "Why do you release nuclear polluted water into the ocean?" So, um, wow. it was a, it has been a big fiasco. So much so that you know the Chinese ambassador in Tokyo had to be had to be summoned. Um, the fears mm. were so high that you know um, Chinese people rejected Japanese imports. This is a clear case of weaponization of uh, weaponization of trade. Uh, but which was fueled by disinformation. So U.S. and Japan then, you know, um, decided that you know the U.S. would um, take in better or higher number of um, fish exports from Japan. But the issue was really mm. strong, and uh, disinformation fueled this sort of an you know um, illegal or illicit blockage of Japanese fish exports. So, and that has ramifications because you know fish and seafood exports forms a major cluster of what Japan has to export to China. So um, right. this is what disinformation can do. And uh, when it comes to India, um, we have observed and there are a lot of um, these statements in the Freedom House report also that Chinese state narratives about India are targeting, are, are basically is an attempt to weave together condescending depictions of India's supposedly chaotic and corrupt state as opposed to China's reformed and modernized economy with calls for cooperation between the two countries. Following the Galwan Valley clash in mid-2020, the tone and focus of Chinese state media and diplomatic commentary shifted to be more defensive, blaming India for the deterioration in bilateral ties. They also highlight economic losses suffered by India as a result of restrictions on Chinese investment. Chinese state narratives also disparage India's quest for great power status as audacious and reckless while belittling Indian military. And China's biggest concern vis-a-vis India seems to be India's increasingly close ties with the United States. So how does uh, Chinese propaganda, propaganda works in India and what are Indian vulnerabilities and what are we doing about it? So um, what does China really want out of India? Because if you see, China has had many opportunities to weaponize trade against India, but it hasn't hmm. done it the ways in the ways in which it has done with regards to Japan, Australia, US and a long list of countries. Why hasn't it done the same to India? There's a reason to that. So China would want India as a partner in taking upon the West, but as a subservient partner. So this fear that China is going to ally with the US is humongous. China wouldn't want that. China, it doesn't work well to the advantage of China. At the same time, China would want India as a partner, which is why from time to time you'll see a lot of articles and narratives trying to placate India. But while wanting India as a subservient partner, it would also want India to give up on its sovereignty. That, of course, is not acceptable to any country in the world. Definitely not to India. So um, you're right. It targets India. It portrays India as chaotic. It's um, extremely corrupt and so on, as if China's uh, China doesn't have a um, you know, um, tigers and flies campaign and as if, you know, uh, tens and 20, uh, 20 of um, Chinese officials in the last one year haven't disappeared and have not been brought under, um, you know, uh, the scanner for corruption. But um, it portrays India as being extremely chaotic, extremely corrupt, in unable to manage its own, um, you know, economy, society and so on. 
I'll give you an example. While Manipur has been a very problematic and thorny issue, if you just look at the disinformation which has been churned out, um, China churned out you know three lines of disinformation on Manipur. The first, the first was that the Indian Army is colluding with the majority tribe, which is a party to the conflict. Second, India has concentration camps, which and and you know the Indian government and the Indian Army is putting the minority tribe, which is at conflict, into these concentration camps. And the third was basically that um, Manipur should separate from India. Manipur should be a part of China. Now, while disinformation is churned out, not a lot of people would put logic to it or put facts to it. There are very clear-cut objectives here. India doesn't have a concentration camp. China does. So clearly deflecting the attention from China's own um, gross violations of human rights, um, using a falsehood. There is no concentration camp in India. Second, Indian army is arresting the minority tribe here. This has the potential to further strife in the already conflicted, you know, conflict-stricken state. So demeaning is the second objective here, demeaning the Indian army, demeaning the Indian government. Third, Mm -hmm. China doesn't officially claim Manipur at all, but then putting out the narrative that Manipuris would do better with China on social media, on disinformation. There is a clear-cut objective over here. China's claims would not end at Arunachal or at Ladakh. They would just keep growing. Um, These are all signs. In 2015 also, their then-ambassador to India, Le Yucheng, had written an article um, and in Chinese, of course, and uh, he had talked about, he had visited Manipur and he had, he began the article with um, how beautiful Manipur is, what money means and so on. Um, and then he goes on to also talk about how it is connected to India or to, you know, the um, bigger part of India. I would not say mainland India because all India is India, um, is connected to the bigger part of India by the narrow chicken's neck, which can be snapped very easily. What is the purpose of an ambassador saying that it could be snapped very easily? So there are clear-cut objectives. And given the fact that, you know, the Chinese social uh, media space or the cyber domain is controlled by the Chinese state, um, and there's a huge surveillance apparatus, none of these narratives would have gone out if they were not palatable to the Chinese um, CPC. So, um, which is why um, it uses disinformation um, it you know uses all these tactics to deflect, to degrade, to dismay, um, and so on. So um, and this is going to get even more problematic before the elections because the narrative that is coming out increasingly is that the ruling party is not going to help Indians or it is not going to further economic rise, which of course is not based on facts. But then when disinformation becomes so amplified. People don't care about checking facts, so that can that can be a sort of electoral um, interference from China. Right. So Global Times claim that India has been churning out propaganda against Pakistan, China for fifteen years by citing EU Disinfo Labs investigation, which was published in twenty nineteen, entitled Indian Chronicles. The report basically mentions that there are two major long term objectives of this operation. Firstly. In India, it is to reinforce pro-Indian and anti-Pakistan and anti-Chinese feelings. Secondly, internationally, it is to consolidate the power and improve the perception of India, damage the reputation of other countries and ultimately benefit 
from more support from international institutions such as EU and the United Nations. If this report is credible and India is engaged in spreading disinformation, how do we vouch to be moral and stand against PRC's disinformation campaign? Right. It's a very important and pertinent question. I'll come to Global Times in a bit. But coming to the EU mm-hmm. disinformation lab, you know, um, if you do any sort of OSINT search, the report came out in 2020 and then nothing has happened beyond that. And as is the hallmark of all Western allegations against India, there is never mm-hmm. any evidence to be found when these malicious narratives are spread by state or non-state actors. What was mm-hmm. indeed wrong, if it did happen, was the resurrection of dead media, dead think tanks and NGOs. Mm-hmm. Apparently, you know, um, the Srivastava group, it even resurrected dead people. Um, this network apparently was active in Brussels and Geneva, and apparently still is, by the way, in producing and amplifying content to undermine primarily Pakistan. Now, the thing here mm. is no action seems to have been taken yet against the Srivastava group, no reportage, nothing. Question here is why? If this so-called investigation is so credible, then what is the action taken mm. against the Srivastava group or all these NGOs which were involved in churning out a certain sort of narrative. Now, another thing, um, this report, which is available on the on their website, it says the group was targeting Pakistan. If you go to the online link of this so-called investigative report, you see that India's map is wrong. Pakistan-occupied Kashmir is not shown as disputed. No one here is saying that show it as a part of India, but it is still disputed. It is parceled off to Pakistan. So question here is who is serving whose interests here? This so-called investigation says says that the operation's mission is to discredit nations in conflict with India, particularly Pakistan, but also China to a lesser extent. Now, it's not the government of India, but the EU, which has a whole FEMI mechanism, foreign interference and manipulation of information, which tries to deal with disinformation Mm. from China. So is the EU discrediting nations here? Or do these normative terms and moral standards or other double standards apply only to India? It shows the extremely colonial mindset that Europe till date has. Um, In 2023, it was reported that the EU was to launch a platform to fight Russian Russian and Chinese disinformation. So again, is it the EU that is discrediting nations or the narrative applies only to India? So the report goes on and on. It says we uncovered a network of coordinated UN accredited NGOs promoting Indian interests, criticizing Pakistan, etc. They say they could tie, they could tie, the term here is could tie, could tie at least 10 of them directly to the Srivastava family, with several other dubious NGOs pushing out the same messages. None of the names of these NGOs are available. Uh, What Hmm. is the factual credibility is still unknown. Now, as opposed to this, in 2022, India's Union Home Ministry released a list of 117 United Nations bodies and other international organizations whose contribution to Indian entities will not be covered under the Foreign Contribution Regulation Act of 2010, FCRA. Mm -hmm. FCRA registration Mm -hmm. of nearly 2,000 NGOs for violating various provisions of law in the last few years were cancelled. So um, a majority of them either did not adhere to taxation norms or were engaging in anti-India activities, including proselytization in India, which is not acceptable as per the constitution of India. So the cancellations took place with evidence. Now this investigation, the evidence is still not there. Neither has there been any action taken. So um, it's um, the understanding the credibility is a bit difficult. 
Now, um, they say that, you know, these organizations created by the Srivastava group organize trips for members of the European Parliament to Kashmir, Bangladesh and Maldives. Some of these trips led to institutional controversies as the delegations of these, you know, uh, um, European Parliament, they were presented as official EU delegations when in fact they were not traveling on behalf of the Parliament. Fair enough. Hmm. Two things here again. If this was something that the Indian government did, questioning the right to freedom of movement of its officials, this would be called by the West as backsliding of democracy. But when the EU itself engages in the same thing, it is to curtail influence. So, double standards much? Second, are EU officials, the one who have allegedly gone on these so-called trips by funded by the Srivastava group, I don't think they would be so naive or powerless that they got portrayed as representing their institutions when they were traveling on their in their individual capacities. Coming to the last bit of the report, it gives policy recommendations. It says, we are alarmed to see the con- continuation Note the word continuation of Indian Chronicles, which despite a first report and wide press coverage has pursued its 15-year-long operation, etc., etc. This should serve as a call to action for decision makers to put in place a relevant framework to sanction actors abusing our international institutions. So clearly, as per the report online itself, nothing has happened. Why didn't anything happen? Nothing happens when there is no evidence. What was really long wrong and if it could be proven, resurrecting dead media, resurrecting dead NGOs, that was wrong. And I'm sure the EU is adept and capable of penalizing such sorts of activities. The question here is, why is there no reportage after 2020? Why is there no information, no credible information? Everything is based on could and should, moral hectoring, which is very typical of the, of the Anglo-Saxon world. Now, that that being said, coming to global times, this perfectly fits what China would want or global times would rather want, a fissure between India and the Western world. So it has picked up on this. While there are a lot of other positive reports about, you know, collaborations between US and India or even, you know, different EU members and India or even the EU as a group itself and India that would not be pushed out as a narrative by Global Times. Global Times picks and chooses the narratives which suits its interest. So disinformation is a potent tool. And um, India yet does not have a full, um, very, very power-packed sort of, um, you know, approach to dealing with disinformation. While there are certain civil society organizations which are taking action, um, you know, talking more about disinformation, The Indian cyberspace is also from time to time sanitized. There's still a lot which can be done. Coming up with a full-fledged framework like the FEMI, which of course takes Indian interests on account, would be very helpful. So um, I think that's, that's what my answer to the question would be. Great answer, Professor. And as you mentioned before, like this year in 2024, elections will be held in many countries, over 70 countries involving more than 3 billion voters. And these votes remain vulnerable to disinformation. Countries must be vigilant against not only the spread of flagrant lies and hoaxes, but also brainwashing campaigns cleverly crafted using open information. It has been observed that when targeting democratic countries, China's information manipulation efforts have encountered major setbacks, often due to pushback from local media and civil society, which you mentioned in case of Taiwan. The stakes are high. If China's global narratives ultimately prevail, 
it will encounter less resistance to reshaping the international order to the detriment of individual liberties and national sovereignty around the world. There is a need to establish a separate organization to combat disinformation and log all known entities attacking India, debunk all confirmed cases with relevant inf informed information, and we also need to track all instances of known disinformation campaigns at home and educate the population on current disinformation campaigns. It sounds a lot easier to say, but I know it's really difficult. But I think with the election coming and uh, social media, internet penetration growing in India, it's, it's high time that we need to have such a system and structure at place like Taiwan has. Thank you so much, Dr. Pathak, for sharing your insights and taking the time to be here with us. I know like how extremely hectic your schedule is. Thank you so much. And to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. See you all in next episode of All Things Policy. Thanks, uh, Takshashila. And thanks, Rakshit. It's always wonderful talking to you. Thanks a lot. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at takshashilainst or our website takshashila.org.in.